Quick announcement about the Dorky Book Festival, 15th to 18th of June. That's six months away, man. I know, John. I'm getting very, very prepared. I'm getting very prepared. No, but one of the problems with Dorky, well, it's, it's a good problem to have, is that lots and lots of people don't get seats. They book late. And there's, That's true. You know, because That's true. things sell out so quickly. Mm. So at Christmas, we're going to give you an ideal Christmas present, which is a VIP ticket, which goes on sale this weekend. We call the Joyce Pass because we start on Bloomsday. Ooh, nice. Okay. I like that. 120 euros gives you access to six events of your choice, reserved seating, obviously early booking, and have a chance to win a golden ticket, which is access for two to the Author's Lounge. Right, and the Author's Lounge is where all the Nobel Prize winners come and the Booker lovely, Prize winners. Lovely. You know, people are into literature. They want to meet the authors. They want to meet their mates, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So to get this is subscribe at dorkybookfestival.org. If you're already on the mailing list, grant. If you're not, subscribe now, dorkybookfestival.org, and you will get an email over the weekend. So it's six tickets, 120, guaranteed seating, up the top, up the front, and in with a chance of VIP access for two to the author's lounge for the whole weekend. And that, Mac, would make an ideal Christmas present. Always thinking of you, John. Always think. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. It is brass monkeys. But, John, it is only, what I'm saying is it's only about zero degrees, right? The notion that we have to have a national emergency task force to deal you're right, you're with right, you're right. a snap of cold weather yeah. is kind of... Hilarious. It's a whole new thing. It's and a, whole and new it's a bit thing. like today, in the in the cold weather, I was walking by Dunleary Bats, the bats, no bats. Yeah. It's the same sort of idea. Yeah. It's just down the road, we've had this uh, thing called Dunleary Bats. You probably, if you're Irish, you know all about it. It was a very, very nice Victorian bath place and uh, the council did it up at an astro- astronomical cost. And, uh, they Which took ages. It took ages. And they then announced at the end, as they're about to unveil it, uh, there's no baths in Dunleary Baths. <laughs> so, and do you know my cousin did all the ironworks down there? And it's the ironworks that say Dunleary Baths, and it's really yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Niall Donnellan, good man, Niall. This is the Longford Slashers. The Longford Absolutely. Slashers. <laughs> but his dad was more involved in a Longford United football team, as far as I remember, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, Charlie Donnellan, my uncle, he also had a... Um, he was a goalkeeper, from yeah, my recollection, yes, for Longford he, Town. Yeah, but he, he had a trial for Arsenal oh. back in the day, back in the 60s. Wow. Well, there you go. And if he had... 
And it was uh, Wilson, it, wasn't it? What's your man's name? It was it was Pat Jennings. Ooh. Right. And it was Wilson before Pat Jennings or after Pat yeah. Jennings? I'm not sure. So that's who he was up against. That's He's, why he didn't get his spot. Well, that's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad. That's a good brag. <laughs> that is a good brag. Uh, we could talk football, but we won't. We won't. We won't. We won't. Okay. <laughs> football. The whole world is talking football. We're not talking football. But what I want to talk to you today about is Ukraine, John. Yeah. The biggest story of the year, Ukraine, the war. Everybody's focusing on the war. I want to focus on the Ukrainian economy. But last night if, I was watching- Is there a Ukrainian there economy? There is a Ukrainian economy. Right. And I will tell you about being there in 1998, okay. Okay. many years Good. ago, when I devised the Irish pub index, which I'll talk okay. to you about in a second. But let's come back. There is an economy in Ukraine. It has been completely trounced and trummeled and battered by the war. Of but course, it is- yeah. An economy and it's where they take the economy after the war is quite interesting. There's lots of people juggling for position and lots of various sides. Yes. So we've got all that. Yeah. And of course, the man who'll make that decision will most likely be Zelensky. Mm. But last night I was watching David Letterman on oh, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Letterman has these kind of mm. conversations with, and it was with Zelensky in a tube station. It was really, really, it was right. deep yeah. in the tube station. If anybody's been to Kiev, the tube stations are amazing. They're like that great, they're like, we're built in the same way as the Moscow tube yeah, stations. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the Moscow Metro is a, the single most amazing piece of urban transport architecture I've ever seen. It's amazing, right? Yeah. And the, the level of detail that's in them, the beauty of them, and the Kiev Metro is exactly the same. Right, okay. And that's where... Letterman was interviewing Zelensky. So it was really evocative. And of course, there were trains keep going up and passing. That's the interesting thing is life is going on in Kiev. Yeah. Right? And there was a couple of people watching, not that many. And Zelensky was impressive, funny, very serious when he had to be, lighthearted when he had to be, all those combinations. He's a, he's a brilliant performer, which makes him, I don't know if he's a great leader or not, but he he certainly has a way of rallying the troops and keeping morale up, which, keep is, morale up, which, which is a brilliant leader in itself. Which is half know? the battle, you yeah. know? I mean, as you say, it kind of remains to be seen what comes after this, yeah. in the next phase. By, by the way, I'll just say, you know, he's Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Yeah. Do you know who Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1948 was? Who? Franco. Oh. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Just just saying this all. Okay. Okay. Anyway, but before we get on to more about Zelensky and Ukraine and stuff, tell us about the pub index. The pub index. Okay. So, John, my first visit to Ukraine in Kiev was in 1998, a long, mm. long time ago. And I was working as an economist for BMP, the French bank, BMP Paribas. Yeah. And they had interests, as the French have, all over the place. So even then, it was very clear that Ukraine was being fought over by the remnants of the Soviet Union, the new European powers who wanted to get a stake in it. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of characters, both shady and not so shady, knocking around. So yeah. it was really, it was like the Actually, Wild I'll West. I'll tell you a story from the World Service now in a second. Okay, well, exactly. So, so, so that was the situation. And I was sent over by BMP. And I remember staying in the Hotel Kievskaya Rus, mm -hmm. which was this extraordinary old Soviet, like the in-tourist hotel. Anybody who was in Moscow in the old days will know these places, right? Right. And after about a week in Ukraine, it was very clear to me that everybody was lying to me. My job was to go back to Boulevard <laughs> Houseman in Paris and explain to the board of BMP what we were doing in Ukraine, what was going on in the Ukraine. Right. 
what was likely to happen to the hryvna, which is the currency, which is still the, the currency, the bond market, etc. This was all the time where this was a few months before Putin was installed, and there was chaos okay, right, yeah. all over mm. the former Soviet Union in the sense that Russia was, the ruble was on the floor, Yeltsin was drunk, they were basically borrowing huge amounts of money. There was wholesale, wholesale mm. looting going on. So I find myself a young whippersnapper in Ukraine. And I figure Timing out- Timing is everything. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like Zelig. I just turn up in these places. So, so basically the thing about economics training was eventually you do realize, hold on, there's something not right here. And these stories I've been told about the currency, the interest yeah. rate- the amount of reserves they have, the amount of bond issues they have, what they're going to do with the so stock market. Is this, are these commercial banks telling you this or is this kind of the central bank? Central bank. The so okay, central bank, right, okay. Ministry of Finance, all these things, they were all lying to us, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought to myself, Jesus, they're all lying to me, but I still have to come up with a plausible reason as to why a French bank should be in Ukraine. Right. Okay. So, and of course, this is the great thing about the poor old economists. They go in first and then they send the economists in later to justify while they're there. Right. So you're not like, it's, it's, you're kind of rubber stamping at a certain yeah. stage. So I, I couldn't figure it out. And I was really quite nervous because obviously that's your job is to, is to, yeah. is to come up with a view of the country. And there was an Irish pub, right? So this must be one of the very first Irish pubs in Kiev. I presume there's loads now, but one of yeah. the very, very first ones, I think it was called O'Grady's or O'Brien's or O'Connor's. I can't remember. Okay. Anyway, on a corner. And on a corner, on a corner with a big screen. Oh, that's all I remember. And I remember going into the GAA blast. Yeah, out. yeah, no, it was Premiership football because right. that's the Irish pubs is where all the Brits hung out. Okay, yeah, right? of course, yeah, yeah. And it was Premiership, you know. And I went in. It was like a Tuesday night, and I was re obviously on my face, etched on my face, was the worry that you know I had to go back to Paris yeah. about three days later. They're not telling me the truth. Yeah, with a, with 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 an economic report. And there's a fella, and I remember he was from Carrigan Shore. I actually know one or two people from Carrigan Shore, but not many. And I yeah. remember he sat to me, he says, he says, you look a bit miserable, right? And I said, well, look, I've got this problem, man. I've got to come up with a story as to what's going on in this country. And I can't find it. And central bank's lying to me. Ministry of Finance is lying to me. All the, all, all, all the officials. Yeah, oh, you're crying to my point of stout, you know? And he said, <laughs> uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. No, that, there you go. So he said, what do you have to do? I said, well, I've got to get it like a four or five year view of, you know, very simply, what is going on here? And he said, yeah, okay. He said, uh, have you ever thought of looking at Irish pubs? I said, what do you mean? I was just thinking, well, you might as well at this stage, you know? I said, well, what do you mean? He says, he says, well, like Irish pubs. He said, you know, like we set up this Irish pub. He says, well, you know, I, I was in Serbia for a while and I, I came here. Now, anybody who fled Serbia quickly in the late 90s. Did he flee? Well, he said, I had to get out. Right? Oh, all right, okay. So I'm thinking, how dodgy is this geezer? Okay. <laughs> Because I'd known Yugoslavia because I'd been yeah, down there. Yeah, right? yeah. So anyway, he uh, he said to me, he said, and he said something interesting. He says, do you know what would be fascinating? He said, if you got the amount of Irish pubs in a city, particularly out in this part of the world, it might tell you something about what's actually going on. And what he was saying was that if you set up an Irish pub, or any, any pub, but an yeah, Irish pub, yeah. you need to know about the tax system. You need to know about real estate. You need to know about importing, exporting. You need about which corrupt guys to pay off in the local yeah, yeah. council to get your planning. You need to know how easy it is to get money in, money out, the banking system, the insurance scene. You mm. need to know, is there a middle class you can sell this expensive mm. beer to? Are there expats there? And suddenly... How do I get Sky Sports? How do I get Sky Sports? Well, actually, exactly. No, <laughs> the point is, suddenly I thought, this guy's onto something, mm. right? That actually, he's right that the... If you're looking for an indicator of economic vibrancy in a city, 
in a very far-flung city, Irish pubs could be a very good one. Yes. So yeah, remember yeah, the yeah. economists used to do the Big Mac Index, right? Remember yeah. the Big Mac Index of exchangers? I said, no, I'm going to do the Irish pub index. So I remember I rang back to Paris to my researcher at the time. And uh, I said, I said, Priscilla, I've got a very strange request. And she said, well, it's you, David. So yeah, it's <laughs> not unusual. I said, I'd like you to ring Guinnesses. And I'd like you to find the amount of Irish pubs all around the world. And then I'd like you to divide the amount of Irish pubs in a city by the population, by per thousand people. Yeah. And then we'd have an index of how vibrant the city is. The more Irish pubs, right. the more vibrant the city. And, and what, so the more Irish pubs, the easier it is to do, to do business. And the easier it is to do business, the better the prospects of the economy will be growth. Because if they're lying to me in the central bank, yeah. what they don't know is what's going on on the ground. Yeah. If we find that there's a difference between what the central bank are saying to me, and the Department of Finance are saying to me, and the actuality, well, then you go near the place. Mm. But if we find out that the actual vibrancy on the ground, as measured by Irish pubs, suggests the growth rate is very, very high, we invest there. So so what did you find out? So this is the amazing thing. So so what I decided to do at that at the time, the only people you could find out things were the IMF, the World Bank, Goldman Sachs, all those, right? right? And they'd have all these forecasting models, et cetera, Mm, et cetera. mm. So we did it, yeah. right? And then what it did was we, we got the number of Irish pubs per thousand. Yeah. And then we superimposed this upon the real interest rate in the country. And what we found was that the number of Irish pubs forecasted the future interest rates to an extraordinary degree of accuracy. Meaning okay. that when, and we can still use this, right? Yeah. Okay, when there are lots of Irish pubs, it means there's lots of vibrancy. When there's lots of vibrancy, means there's lots of tax revenue. When there's lots of tax revenue and foreigners there, mm. there's lots of tax revenue and foreigners, means there's lots of credibility. And what happens then, typically, the next bond issuing will see the rate of interest rate fall. And it was unbelievably accurate. So we were more, the Irish pub index is more accurate than the IMF, the World wow, Bank, Goldman Sachs, all those ones. And in actual fact, I've, I've continued to do it for years, just messing around with it. Yeah. But I remember leaving that pub thinking, that's the way actually to think about economics. You know, Make it logical. Yeah. Make it easy to understand, etc. So my first... So you're a fellow from Carrigan Shore. Is- he's, 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 the, he's the Milton Friedman. He's the, <laughs> he's the J.M. Keynes of barmen, right? But I actually loved Kiev. I loved it. The city was fantastic. Down by the river, these huge, huge barges, really vibrant, lots of nightlife, yeah. lots of bars, lots of restaurants, great people. It was it was amazing. It's kind of quite shocking when you go in there. Soviet, so like all Soviet cities have these huge apartment blocks on the way in and they look a bit intimidating. Yeah. But the actual fact, the city was, was, the, re- the, the was core really of it, great. Yeah. The core of it was great. And that was in 1998. And then what's interested me now, John, is what has happened to the economy since then? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So, I mean, obviously, when you started off there saying, look at the economy of Ukraine, I was kind of thinking, is there an economy? Like, how can a country operate, a country that's under bombardment right. for the last guts of a year, you know, when, when everyone is on a war oh, yeah, footing. Absolutely. So, so what, okay. kind of, what kind of economy yeah, is there? Do, what we're going to do, answer, I'll, ask you, I'll answer that question two ways, right? Uh, that's a very, very Fianna Fáil politician thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> Shouldn't think it's this, Mike. I'll answer that in two ways, right? No, no I'll do it, we'll do it in time, right? What we'll do is we'll look at the economy up until the war. Right. Yeah. And contrast Ukraine with, let's say, Poland or Romania, our other post-Soviet economies, right? Okay. See what's going right, what's going wrong. Then what I'm going to do 
is we want to look at the economy after we talk about Zelensky, the economy that he is in control of now, and what he can do in the next few months to keep the economy just ticking over. Mm. And then, this is the fascinating thing, what's going to happen in the post-war, because the war will end, the post-war settlement. And this is where things get quite weird and quite unusual. So let's start, right? Yeah. Ukraine has been the worst performing, up until the war, Ukraine was the worst performing post-Soviet economy of all of them. Why? Now, that's the fascinating thing, right? So Ukraine had, just before the war, a GDP per head of about twelve or $13,000 per head, mm. right? Now, that sounds okay. So it's a middle, it's about the same place as Paraguay. It's a middle-income country, okay. okay? Seems fine, seems fine. Until you contrast it with the other economies that came out of the Soviet orbit, Poland being the most successful one. Mm. And what you see is the Polish GDP is about 30,000 euros per head. Okay, right. So something weird has gone on in Ukraine. Belarus GDP is half again greater is this? than Ukraine. So something weird has gone on in Ukraine. Wow, right? I'm surprised at that. Yeah, so, so was I. Yeah. In fact, Ukraine was 20% poorer four years ago than it was in real terms when it came out of the Soviet Union. Wow. So something very, very strange has happened in that country, right? So you think, well, what is it? Now, obviously, the number one rule of the post-Soviet era in terms of actually being able to get up off the ground is don't piss off Putin, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah. so and the Ukrainians did. So that's the that's the big negative. But yeah. let's just think. So when I was in Ukraine, just think that you know, did something happen in Ukraine in the nineties which was different to the other countries that would have maybe stymied its ability to recover. And when you think the Ukrainians had 10,000% inflation in 1996, right? Jesus. So that will totally and utterly destroy trust in the economy and trust in the Mm. society, okay? And they introduced this new currency called the Hrivna, the H-R-V-N-Y-A. And the Hrivna was the currency that I was dealing with Mm. when I was there, okay? So they had huge levels of inflation, but that would have undermined their ability to recover anyway. Yeah. But by the early 2000s, that rate of inflation had come right down. So the, the question is then, what was going on in that country? But but it is a, it is a country that is, my understanding of the economy of Ukraine was, was very much divided in two. The east part was the mining and industrial side, and the western part was much more agricultural. Yes, and you're absolutely right. In fact, you know the East, you know the Donbass. Yeah, you know the first name for Donbass was huh. Hughesville. Hughesville, <laughs> named after a fellow called Hughes. Donbass was set up by Welsh miners. Oh right, okay. Yeah. And a geezer called Hughes was the was the boss man. I, I swear <laughs> to God, it was called it was it was called Hugova, <laughs> right? Okay, for and then it was called Stalin. Yeah, it's just called Stalin, not even Stalingrad. It's right. called Stalin because Stalin just said, just don't put the fucking grad in there, right? <laughs> but it was started as a Welsh mining town. Right. right. And okay. all the technology came from South Wales. Yeah. Right. And that's, you're actually right. And it was called Hughesville. It's mad. It was, <laughs> all through the late 19th century, it was named after a called Hughes, right? Anyway, point is, you're absolutely right. So you've got the Donbass region, which is iron ore yeah. in the main. Yeah. And then you have the corn, wheat and soya. Yeah. In the, in the West. Yeah. And actually sunflower, sunflower oil, huge export. Right. Okay. But so you're absolutely right. So what happened to the Soviet Union is the Soviet Union was very, very bad at manufacturing, but not so bad at getting things out of the ground. 
So the bits of the Soviet Union that were left with getting things out of the ground didn't do so badly. Mm. But the bits of Soviet Union that were manufacturing did extremely badly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And remember I was telling you about the time I was in hanging out in Prague with the... Uh, the biker gang from Dresden. Yes. Yeah. And they were all driving these amazing motorbikes. I loved them, called Dnieper's. Yes. And they were all made in Ukraine. Right. Needless to say, they're not made anymore. So there was a huge amount of manufacturing industry there, which couldn't compete with the West. So you yeah. can't compete. Only, only a purist will drive a bike like that vis-a-vis, you know, a Suzuki or a Kawasaki yeah. or one of the Japanese or, or BMW, right? So what happened was Ukraine was unfortunate at one level that it actually inherited Soviet manufacturing. The second thing, though, is that you're absolutely right. It, it continued to do that. Mm. So the question is, why did the Ukrainians over the last 20 years not export like the Poles, right? So the reason that Poland is doing so well is that Poland is now very much part of the German supply chain. Mm. So the Poles produce industrial goods for the German final marks and brands, like BMW and Volkswagen and all those ones, right? Yeah. They became the home of German direct foreign investment, right? After the end of the Berlin Wall. And yeah. that's what has made Poland so wealthy. Right Now, if you go right back, no country ever gets wealthy without manufacturing. That's the key, right? And this comes from, you know, Noah Smith, the guy, we know he wrote a great piece about Ukraine yes. about a year ago. Very, yeah. very interesting about that. And he was quoting Hajung Chang, who was down at... Economics. Yes, he's the uh, 50 things you didn't know about, about capitalism, capitalism and the yeah. edible economics and all that. Yeah. And, yeah. He, he, and he's Korean. So Korea yeah. wrote the book of how to get rich, right? The South Korea is the most impressive economy in the world. Yes. By a country mile, right? Yeah. And they were the poorest economy in the 1960s. One of the poorest. They were poorer than Malawi in the 1960s. Right, right? okay. So they've got, and yeah, they yeah. build things, they make things. And what he says is that if you look at economic history, you know, the Brits got rich by making stuff. The Germans got rich by making stuff. The Americans got rich by making stuff. The Chinese by making stuff. The Japanese by making stuff. The Koreans by making stuff. You have to make manufacturing stuff. We in Ireland make manufacturing because mm. we export lots and lots of electronics. We export lots and lots of chemicals, all these things. You have to make mm. things, right? Ukraine doesn't. Poland does. Why? And this comes back to the corruption, right? That was endemic. Okay. So if the central bank were lying to me in 1998, yeah. if they thought some little spotty economist is sufficiently important to be lied to, imagine the corruption on every other level, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. there's nothing makes the truth. And of course, the problem is that the Ukrainian oligarchs bought up all the bits of industry that was for sale in all those voucher privatizations after the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah. What they bought up were utilities and companies that they could actually keep alive, right? Because most of these companies could not be kept alive. So right. they became zombie companies. And what happens is, so they're kept on by soft loans, sure. all that sort of stuff. And those guys then just loot what's left of the company, mm. right? So it's the same kind of stuff that was happening in, in Russia. So it was a mirror All, that's, all yeah, that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. And so what you're seeing then is those oligarchs, sent a very, very clear signal to anybody who was going to come in and direct foreign investment. Look, we own this patch, mm. right? And we're going to run down our companies very, very slowly and we're going to get soft loans from the central bank. And frankly, this is our part of the world. It's a very, very bad sign for a poor country not to have direct foreign investment because it mm. means there's something fundamentally wrong. Yeah. And tends typically to be corruption. 
right? That's one of the major, major issues. Because you think, why didn't the Germans invest in Ukraine? The wages, wages were cheaper. The education system was still the same as Poland. Mm. They went for Poland because there was something going on in Poland that wasn't going on in Ukraine. And that is probably a lack of corruption, right? right? So you get all this into the mix. And of course, then, the worst thing is you get an ongoing war with Russia since 2014. Yeah. So the the, yeah. the teens are gone, right? And another problem is that the Ukrainians then, they didn't go for manufacturing, but what they did was they, and that was evident in 1998 by talking to the likes of me, they went to allow in or attract in foreign investment, not in manufacturing, but in real estate and finance. And that's the worst thing you can do. Absolutely, yeah. Right? That's the worst thing you can do because it means that all you get, and I remember it was very interesting, even in that bar that night mm. when I was bailed out by the barman, the only other Westerners there were all representatives of consumer brands, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's bullshit. You don't get rich buying cans of Coke yeah. with hard-earned money, right? You get rich making the Coca-Cola. Yeah, you yeah, start yeah. These by that. are just distribution centers. Distribution centers of selling yeah. brands and, you know, all sorts of like yeah. fashion brands and then real estate spivs in there. In fact, your man, what was his name? The fellow who was on the telly the other night. Quinn. Quinn. Sean Quinn, the real big real estate business in, right. in Ukraine. So all Jeez. this sort of yeah. stuff, right? And then banks like the bank I work for, BMP, you don't want these people in because they, they actually don't produce anything. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what Zelensky inherited? Now, remember, Zelensky got in on a ticket that was anti-corruption and was going to mollify Russia. He said, look, we'll have to do a deal with Russia, mm. right? So he said, look, we have, to, we have to stop this war in the Donbass. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. this is going on and this is destroying the country. Our, 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 our soldiers are getting killed and it's actually destroying the economy. So Zelensky's original idea is, look, I'll do a deal with Putin, but I'll get rid of corruption. So he's an anti-corruption candidate in the first place. And it's the corruption that has led this 20-year history of Ukraine doing much worse than other countries. Mm. But not just corruption. The Russians turned off the gas supply to them, early doors yeah. in the Donbass. And of course, you cannot grow if the big neighbour beside you is constantly sabre-rattling because it means all capital is nervous in your country. People won't commit long-term investments. If they, mm. What's going to happen if the Russians invade? What's going to happen if the Russians expropriate? What's going to happen if the Russians cut off the Ukrainians? So you have all these things in the mix. But the economy that Zelensky inherited was a total basket. But he was also trying to turn the economy so it's more Europe-facing as opposed to yes, Russian-facing. exactly. Which was, which was Putin's big gripe in the first place. And of course, that's part of the anti-corruption agenda. Yeah. Because the corruption is basically, as you said, a mirror image of the Russian model, yeah. which is we loot the country for the very few and we screw the very many. Yeah. And then we try and keep the whole thing going with bread and circuses like the Sochi Olympics and the World Cup. And yeah. All those things. I mean, the Putin playbook is, is classic. Yeah. You had the World Cup, you had the Olympics, everything. It's a classic. Sure, sure I remember back in, in um, 2004, the Orange Revolution, where it all kicked off. So this is just after when you were, a few years after when you were sitting in your bar. Coming up with economic theories. Exactly. And I was doing the Ukrainian World Service. Oh, yes, programs. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it was really interesting in the run-up to the 2004 elections that were taking place, I think, in October, all the way through September, in the breakfast show, which went out at five in the morning, London time. We would do the program and halfway through, we'd throw over to the Kiev Bureau 
and they would interview one of the one of the many. There, there was twenty something candidates for president, and they'd interview one of the many. And there was one particular morning that we were there, and we threw over to the Kiev bureau, and we kind of sit back and relax for for ten fifteen minutes. And your man starts asking questions, asking the candidate questions about, you know, I don't know, education policy or yeah, the usual, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your man starts answering the question in Russian. And Alexander, the, the presenter, went, whoa, oh, oh, hold on there a second. You know, this is the Ukrainian service. <laughs> yes. You know, do you mind speaking Ukrainian? And your man says, oh, listen, no problem. I'll speak Ukrainian when I'm elected and only in office hours. <laughs> It's hilarious. So it's kind of, but it's that mentality in Ukraine. But that's actually true. Like when everybody I met in Ukraine spoke Russian mm. in Kiev. And I think that was just, are they, are they kind of, the Ukrainian was, Ukrainian was really spoken in Western Ukraine. Yes. And the lingua franca of Kiev at the time was definitely Russian. Right. Okay. And Zelensky's first language is Russian. Yeah. So, I mean, it's all mixed up. It's yeah. all mixed up. Yeah. I like the I like the nine to five. <laughs> it was great though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was just rolling around the place laughing. Do you know what reminds you? It was like the fellows used to speak Irish in the civil service nine to five. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the fellows that you tell you used to have a great go at them was uh, Miles Nagopolin. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. always have a complete low go at them. You know, because <laughs> he was one of them though. He was he? one of them. That's exactly. Like he laughed himself all the time. <laughs> yeah. Come here, listen. That we've just spoken about the economy up until the war. Yes. The Ukrainian economy, the corruption that was going on. But not just not just corruption. They were they were unlucky, right? They were unlucky when they had hyperinflation. Yeah. And then they chose real estate and finance over manufacturing. Yeah. Okay. And real estate and finance are much more corruptible. Yes. Okay. It's much easier to stroke a few quid on real estate and finance than it is on manufacturing. Oh, well, we've seen that here. Precisely, because you know, like if you if you think that, you know, if you've got an Intel plant, mm. it can't be corrupt. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Because the Americans won't stand for it, right? Yeah. They do their own corruption. They do their, <laughs> their own corruption. But you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, if you have a huge amount of direct foreign investment, it means that the thing works at one level, yeah. right? Then they were unlucky in the sense they inherited Russian manufacturing, Soviet manufacturing, rather than any sort of industries that would have high value added. They then had agriculture. Agriculture is also low value added. And so is mining. You know, taking stuff out of the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that's a low value added stuff. Yeah. They've obviously got huge migration of people. Lots of talented Ukrainians live outside Ukraine. So all of this is happening at a time when the state is captured by corrupt oligarchs. And therefore, nobody can get anything done. And of course, what you see is massive capital flight and huge amounts of Ukrainian money sitting in Swiss banks. So I suspect if you and I were to go on our jolliers, John, if we were to go on our jolliers to Geneva, you'd hear a lot of Ukrainians spoken on the street by a couple of these oligarchs. So you've got the Russian model. And as you said, it's playing into the Russian playbook and it's playing into Putin's playbook. Yeah. And as long as this was happening, so the anti-corruption pro-European movement is the opposition to Russia. So all that's going on, but the upshot is that the economy is poorer just before the war in real terms than it was when it left the Soviet Union. That is the backdrop for Zelensky's presidency. Well, let's talk about that and where Zelensky goes from here and when the war finishes, what state will Ukraine be left in and what happens to the economy then? How do you rebuild that economy? Well, let's talk about that after a bit of this. Hold up. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just before we start talking about there is an immediate massive crisis in the Ukrainian economy, right? Which has got to do with how they just keep the whole thing ticking over right mm. now. But the World Bank estimates that 50% of the Ukrainian economy is what they call the informal economy, the black market. Right. And that's what happens when you have corruption, right? Yeah. Is that everybody who wants to do things normally says, well, screw this. I can't go through the normal channels because I'm going to get, I'm going to get shafted here. Mm. So they step out. Right now, the problem with fifty percent in the informal economy is means you're not raising taxes, and if you're not raising taxes, yes. it means your budget deficit's always huge. Yeah. And if your budget deficit's always huge, you're going into a war situation with fragility. But what's basically happening is the West hasn't given Ukraine any money. They're all promises, right? But okay. The Ukrainians yeah. still have to run a society, so it's pay their soldiers. It's esti- exactly, it's estimated that. Ukraine's economy has collapsed by 35% GDP in one year, mm. right? Which is, which is phenomenal when you think about it. But extraordinarily, they're keeping the lights on despite being bombed all the time. They're keeping the railways going. They're keeping the trains going. As I said, Zelensky, when I saw him yesterday, been interviewed by David Letterman. It's in a metro station mm. that works. The hospitals works. The teachers are being paid. The nurses are being paid. The soldiers are being paid. They're buying arms from somewhere. All the time, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, they're buying on the never-never. But what basically happens in those sort of situations is you have three things that are crucial. You've got the exchange rate, you've got the rate of interest, and you've got the budget deficit. So how do you finance a budget deficit? When Zelensky wakes up every morning, he probably gets a little sheet of paper which says, budget deficit this week is going to be hundreds of millions Mm. of dollars, not grivenous, right? because they're spending so much on arms, right? How does he pay everything? Now, usually what happens is the state runs a budget deficit and it borrows. Yeah. And typically it borrows from either its own people or foreigners. No foreigners are going to buy any Ukrainian assets at the moment because they still fear that Russia could win this Of course, yeah. Yeah, Okay. So nobody's going to say, oh, I'll take a 10-year bet on Ukraine at a certain rate of interest, right? Mm. So the Ukrainians can't sell what they would call dollar debt, right? Debt in foreign currency. They might be able to sell a little bit to the Ukrainian diaspora abroad, which is what the Croats did 
during the Yugoslavian War. Okay. Rich Croats yeah. from America and Canada, mm. mainly, mainly American Canada and Australia, financed a lot of the purchasing of arms for Croatia. That's happening a little bit in Ukraine, but the demands are so much bigger mm. for the Ukrainians. So then it means, okay, can they sell their debt to the local people? So can they sell IOUs of the Ukrainian government to local people? At the moment, it's estimated inflation is about 40% per year running in, in, in Ukraine, okay? Mm. Unless the rate of interest is over 40%, nobody will buy them. And the rate of interest is under 40%. So what's happening is no locals will buy local currency debt. So the only way the government can actually finance this is the central bank is printing money. So the right. government is coming in every day and saying, will you print 100 million grivnas? And they're saying yes, right? Now, what that means is that the currency will fall. The currency's already fallen 70%. That means the currency will go into free fall. Now, okay. typically what happens in a war situation is hyperinflation occurs. And the reason hyperinflation occurs is because the government has to print money to keep the whole show on the road. It's not selling any goods outside, so it's running a massive trade deficit. It's importing materials, right? Mm. So it's trying to get foreign currency to buy guns and buy munitions, right? But all the while it has to pay its soldiers. Yeah, of course. So what is yeah. happening is the soldiers have been paid in this paper money, and this paper money is worthless. Now, typically, governments make the mistake as they say, okay, well, I've got to get inflation under control. So they put in price caps on agricultural goods, mm. right? So it means that the people in the cities can actually afford to buy food. But the problem with that is that that means that the farmers are penalized because they're product has been sold under market value. And what you find is the farmers end up selling in the black market. Okay, So you gotcha. can actually get a situation where anti-inflationary mechanisms put in place to bring down inflation, make it worse. And this is the actual dilemma. So this, the so interesting how, thing is- how do, you, how do you deal with this then? So the interesting thing is like, so from an economist perspective, even in a war, you still have to balance all these things, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, interestingly, the central bank governor- the last one in Ukraine resigned in October under corruption scandals, right? Mm. But Zelensky's government has a choice. Either it says to the central bank, raise interest rates to make the bonds attractive, in which case local people might buy the bonds. Yeah. But that runs the risk of imposing austerity on a country at war. Jesus. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're the yeah. president, right? Yeah. You cannot do that. Zelensky's whole magic is holding the whole thing together, right? Mm. So how do you hold the whole thing together when these economic dynamics are going? Now, what I think should happen is the European Union should give them a massive credit facility and mm. say, look, don't worry, we'll back you up. But That's I, not I, happening. I thought we were doing that. No, though. but a massive day-to-day -day credit facility. Right. So basically, we'll pay your bills, right? But can we afford that? Yeah, I think we can we can afford it, but you know, it, it, there will be a tax on European citizens to pay for Ukraine. You know, we can't just right. make it up, right? Yeah, yeah. But the ECB could give them a credit line, a revolving credit line. It probably has done this in all but name. But what's clear to me, if you look at the numbers in, in Ukraine, that there's a battle going on between the central bank of mm. Ukraine, which wants to raise interest rates, and the government of Ukraine under Zelensky, which says, look, we've got to hold the whole thing together, right? Yeah. Now. So Ukraine is out of money. It's out of money. Mm. Ukraine is now bust, in effect. And Zelensky's just trying to keep the whole thing together, right? So when the Ukrainians are on TV looking for arms and aid, right, 
They're also looking for money. Now, the, the big problem is to look right now. I fear that you will have what I would call the NGOization of Ukraine. Yeah. Where all critical, previously governmental services are run by NGOs. So the health service. Yeah. Right? So It's not the, ideal either. No, it's not. Because you need a strong state to fight a war. Yeah. And the more the state is weakened, the less capacity the state has to prosecute but the war. Th- th- this is this is like um, what happened in Iraq, isn't it? Because everywhere, because it had had fallen apart so much that there was nothing left. There's to, nothing left. I, I noticed it needed to, to build. On. To build. I even yeah. noticed it in Lebanon. Lebanon, all these right. ambulances everywhere off are all financed by somebody else, by NGOs. Right. So you have the United yeah, yeah. Nations. Yeah. You have this, that, and the other European Union. That's a disaster for a country. Yeah. So. But we're like, you know, we're, we're talking about Ukraine because this is the country that's been invaded this year. It's the biggest story of the year, maybe the biggest story of, of this decade. Yeah. Right? And very few people are talking about the nuts and bolts of what's going down, right? And what's going down is the NGOization of the country, right? And I worry about that because let's say the war is over, right? Let's say there's a, there's mm. a peace settlement of some sort, Right. You know, somebody was writing recently, you know, maybe it'd be like between North and South Korea. Like, there's actually no peace. There's just an armistice. Yes. You know, there's still yeah, a war, yeah, yeah, yeah. technically. Yeah, yeah, but you need to yeah. kind of maybe get out of it that way, right? But then you've got, what, what worries me is what I saw in the post-Soviet world, where every single asset was sold to asset strippers, to the financial markets, Countries like Russia, Ukraine, all these countries initially were just completely and utterly stripped of all their assets by banks, right? Right, by foreign banks. By foreign banks, yeah. okay? And there's, a, there's, there's definitely a constituency in the United States of rich sort of private equity people putting money together who see an enormous opportunity to buy Ukraine for half nothing. Mm. And the Ukrainians are so desperate for money that there is a constituency that says, well, just sell so, them. Yeah, so that that works for the short term. It works for the but short term, but and then what you would have, you just have Western oligarchs, not Ukrainian yes. oligarchs, yeah, yeah, owning yeah, yeah. the country. What we need to do is to have a Marshall Plan, like the Americans had for Germany. So the Americans, you know, you know the Brits wanted to, you know the Churchill wanted to do a policy in Germany called pastoralization, which was to turn Germany into pasture land. He wanted to destroy <laughs> all German industry. This is what the, the Brits came to the table after the Second World War. Right. They said, we're going to destroy this country that will never, ever rise again. And the Americans said, are you mad? Yeah. You just did that in the First World War. You tried to do that after the First World War. Yeah. They said, no, we're going to build the country. And the amazing is the Americans did something extraordinary after the Second World War. They required American companies to buy German components in the industrial production in the United States. Is that right? In order to wow. give the Germans a leg up. Yeah, yeah. Right? So... If you look at Ukraine, the only way Ukraine is going to be a successful post-war country is if it has a martial aid plan, which demands there's no asset stripping, which requires capital to go in the long term, which gives them a chance. And my fear is that there, a lot of the capital that is now swirling around waiting for Ukraine to have a peace deal mm. is speculative capital which will try and come in and buy little bits of Ukraine that's left, you know, little bits of the agriculture, you know, corn, wheat, all these things that you can actually insure against. So if you, for example, buy a big chunk of Ukrainian agriculture, you can say, well, there's a stream of income coming, which is the wheat or the soya or the corn or whatever it happens to be, right? That would be a disaster. 
right? Mm. So what we need for the Ukrainians is two things. One is they need money now to make sure their currency doesn't collapse, mm. completely collapse, yeah. and their budget deficit, and the country doesn't go bust, right? So bad enough fighting a bloody war, going bust at the same time. And there doesn't seem to be an urgency, from what I can see, in your in the European Union about giving them this kind of underwritten promise that we will give you hard currency, we'll give you euros right now to pay all your debts. Yeah. But it needs a 10-year plan, and that plan has to be based on something not for Western capital, but for the Ukrainian people. Now, just before you go, we're happy to bring you a small international segment advertising Santander UK and our new solution, Santander Navigator. This new portal makes international growth simpler. So if you think that doing business abroad is a hassle, using Santander Navigator will show you how it can save you both time and money as you grow. For today's segment, we're joined by Emma Jones, founder of Enterprise Nation. Since launching in 2005, the Enterprise Nation team has helped thousands of people start and grow their businesses. Santander UK is Enterprise Nation's international banking partner, working together to grow the number of exporters in the UK through campaigns, learning sessions, and many other events and content. So welcome, Emma, and over to you, Mac. Emma, tell me, tell me, how can small businesses expand their reach and expand their business by entering into one or even multiple markets? Because like, for example, over here in Ireland, you know, it's a small country, the market's small, can be exhausted very quickly, you have to look out. In in your opinion, how, how do small businesses do this? Well, one thing and one way in which they do it is they're always in the places where international customers are. So we have seen, David, a little bit of a pause in the past couple of years on small businesses putting EU trade on hold. However, we're very optimistic that that's going to come back in 2023. So ways in which small businesses are doing it is they're trading on marketplaces. So, of course, if you're selling on the likes of Amazon, Depop, Fair.com, you're literally in the places that international customers are. So our advice to small businesses is connect with customers. So kind of focus on making your sales first. We then talk to small businesses about going local. So kind of once you're making good sales in a particular territory, then start looking at kind of making more investment in that territory. That might be a local agent or distributor or indeed building up a local team. And across all of this, it won't surprise you to know that we do advise businesses to get support. So reach out to the likes of Santander, use great tools like Santander Navigator, find export professionals, because there's intricacies, of course, with exporting everything from logistics, different cultures, different languages, and you need lots of help to navigate that. So, of course, tools like Navigator really come in handy. And I'm sure, like in the UK in particular, there's, you know, there's been small companies are kind of raring to go in a way in terms of exporting, you know, because you've had all this Brexit stuff and are we in, are we out, or is it going to be tariffs? Is there not going to be tariffs? Are we allowed trade? Are we not allowed trade? But once that's cleared, I presume businesses are just kind of, you know, they'll be kind of bailing out of the hatches, really, won't they? They're going to be unleashed. This unleashed. is what we're, and in fact, unleashed. yeah, they're going to be unleashed. And this is why I say we're really optimistic about an export boom from next year, because you are exactly right, David. There's been this pent up 
well, hopefully demand from overseas, but kind of pent up willingness from small businesses to say, I'm really eager to get back out to new markets. What you also kind of look at is, of course, the UK, as indeed many other territories, has got a cost of living crisis. So the advice we're giving small businesses is diversify your risk. So if you're only selling in the UK, that's great and keep on selling in the UK. However, you're going to diversify your risk if you look to other markets because then you're not so reliant on one. And there's so much evidence and research that shows that businesses that export tend to just in general be fitter businesses. They're more digitally able, they're more financially savvy, and they have diversified their risks, so they feel stronger about going forward. So you're right, the kind of appetite is there, and businesses, I think, are just waiting for the new year, and they're going to say, right, time to go global. And tell us, if there's one trick that a company can deploy, let's say, in exporting, what, what would it be? I would say to get support, surround yourself with people who can help you make the export journey that little bit smoother. Great stuff. Well, Emma Jones of Enterprise Nation, thank you very much for that insight. Thank you, David. Thanks so much to Emma Jones for joining us and thanks to Santander. Whether you're new to exporting or just looking to expand your business internationally, check out Santander Navigator and request a demo at santandernavigator.co.uk. Subscription fees apply. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.